0: Good teachers ask good questions. Jesus was certainly more than a good teacher. He was the Son of God. He was God in the flesh. But Jesus was not less than a good teacher, indeed a great teacher. And as a great teacher, Jesus asked some of the greatest, some of the most significant questions that have ever been asked. And among the most important questions that Jesus ever asked was this one. Who do you say that I am? Lots of people during Jesus' life and ministry had opinions and theories about who Jesus was. Some of them got pretty close, but most of them were in one way or another wide of the mark. And still today, many people have opinions and theories about who Jesus is, and why Jesus came, and what Jesus accomplished. And again, many of them missed the mark, one way or another. But Jesus was not content just to know what people around him, in sort of the wider crowds, thought about him. He asked the disciples about that. Who are people saying that I am? He wanted to know what his disciples thought about who he was. And so he asked them, point blank, who do you say that I am? And that was a question not just for his disciples, but for each one of us. Indeed, for each person on the planet. Who do you say that Jesus is? As we make our way through the Apostles' Creed on Sunday mornings as sort of our Outline for talking about the major doctrines of Scripture, those things that all Christians believe. What we saw last week in Ephesians 4 is called the faith, and we're supposed to be aiming for the unity of the faith, that is, unity among those core doctrines, those fundamental truths that all Christians agree on. We're going to start this morning where the Apostles' Creed starts, and that is with I believe, or we believe. Believe. What is it that we, not only what is it that we believe, but the importance of being able to say, this is what I believe. This is what we believe. Saying aloud, confessing our faith. That's where we're going to start this morning. We're going to look first at Jesus' life and ministry briefly and how, who he was and what he did, raised Important questions that require an answer. We're all then we're gonna see second how Jesus didn't just raise those questions by his life and ministry, but he impressed upon his followers the importance of them answering those questions. The necessity, in fact, of them answering those questions and, and the necessity for us of answering those questions and then finally we're going to see how the scriptures over and over and over not only model for us but also instruct us in the way we should confess our faith the way we should speak aloud what it is that we believe. So we're going to begin, we're going to be in a lot of different passages of Scripture this morning. Normally we're in just one place and we're going book by book, but today there's going to be a lot of passages of Scripture. You probably won't be able to turn to them, you might just want to jot them down if you're taking notes. We're going to be kind of all over the Gospels and all over the New Testament, really. We're going to start with Jesus and what it was about Jesus that caused people to wonder Who he was, and to try to figure out who he was. One of the things that struck people about Jesus was that he spoke like no one else. Jesus, of course, did miracles and signs and wonders and all those kinds of things, but when you read through the Gospels, a lot of what he was doing was teaching and he was preaching. And people were not just impressed with Jesus' teaching and preaching, as we would expect, they were struck by how unique and different Jesus' teaching and preaching were. For example, at the end of Jesus' most famous sermon, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, Matthew tells us the way people responded at the end of that sermon when he says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In other words, this is not the kind of teaching they were used to. There was something not only unique about Jesus, but unique about the way that he taught. On another occasion in Luke 4, it says, Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. We know the reason for that, right? Because Jesus was able to speak... Not merely as a prophet who says, thus says the Lord. He was able to speak and preach as God come down as a man and say, this is what I say. And say it as one who needs to be believed and obeyed. On another occasion in John chapter 7, the Pharisees sent some officers to arrest Jesus. John 7, 32 says the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, that is, about Jesus being the Christ. And so it says the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And then several verses later it says the officers then came to the chief priests, after they've been to arrest Jesus, but didn't. They came back. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. We couldn't arrest that guy. Have you heard him speak? We've never heard anybody like this. There was something unique about the way Jesus taught, about the way Jesus preached, about the authority with which Jesus spoke because there was something unique about Jesus himself. He was the one God man. God come to dwell as man among men. He was unique. Not only was his teaching unique, but of course he did things that nobody else did. We know the miracles, how he cast out demons from people, how he healed the lame and the blind, even even a man born blind from birth. We know that he raised people from the dead. And though some of the prophets in the Old Testament would occasionally do things like that, nobody did as many miracles and signs and wonders as Jesus did, with as much authority, with as much power, with as much consistency. So that in John seven thirty one it says, Many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In other words, if Jesus is not the Messiah, what's the Messiah gonna be like? If this man is not the one who has come to heal and save and deliver, then what's the deliverer going to look like? This guy's doing more signs and wonders than anybody we've ever heard about, read about, any prophet that's ever been sent to our people. There's something about this man who's unique. So who is he? People couldn't help but ask that question around Jesus because of the things that he did and because of the way that he spoke. So in Mark six, for example, Mark six, one and two, it says he went away from there. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They go on to talk about if I remember correctly who his parents were and like this is Jesus' hometown they're like this kid grew up down the street from us we know his parents we saw him grow up how is he now able to speak this way and do these things Where did he get all this? this is not a normal hometown kid who is he even the disciples who had, a, in some ways, a better idea of who Jesus was than anyone else. After all, that's why they were following him. right? They thought that he might be the Messiah, he might be the Christ. On one occasion, when they were in the boat with Jesus, and the storm arose, and they were afraid that they were going to perish, and so they woke Jesus up, and Jesus rebuked the wind and calmed the sea. After they saw him do that, here's what they said to themselves in Matthew eight twenty seven. What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Even the men who thought it was worth leaving behind their lives and their livelihoods to follow Jesus, when they saw the kinds of things that Jesus did, said, Who is this guy? How can he do these things? So Jesus' life, Jesus' words, Jesus' miracles... Caused people to wonder who he is, who he could be. You you couldn't be around Jesus and be neutral about him. That's that's the posture a lot of people like to try to take today. Well, you know, he's a good teacher. You know, we've all heard that a hundred times. He's a good teacher. He's a good man. There's some things Jesus said that everybody should do, but, you know, that's about as far as I'm willing to go. But Jesus will not let us be neutral about him. Jesus will not let us do the just good teacher talk. Jesus himself requires us to give an answer to the question, who do you say that I am? The question that his presence, his actions, his words raise, that question, Jesus says, you've got to give an answer. And your answer matters. One of the ways he did that was by making claims that require a response. See, Jesus not only taught like nobody else, he claimed things about himself that nobody else would dare to claim. For example, in Matthew 10, 37-39, Jesus said, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And then he says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What sort of person can claim higher love, higher allegiance than what you owe to your family? Who can say, here's where you'll find your life, losing it for me? I mean, we can think of some crazy people from history who might say things like that. Some maniacal dictators and self-obsessed rulers and things like that. But not anybody we would listen to. Certainly not anybody we would read their words over and over and meditate on and seek to follow. Jesus, we know, is not like those men. What is it about Jesus that enables him to say things like that and people listen and people follow? The only kind of person who can say things like that and not be a narcissist is God. Only God can say, you have to love me. More than you love anything else. Even more than you love yourself. The only way that you can have real life is if you give your life to me. Because I made you for me. Only God can say that. Jesus spoke as God because he is God. He even said in John 8, 58. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham lived thousands of years before Jesus. And Jesus didn't merely say, I existed before Abraham existed, which would have been a significant enough claim. Jesus deliberately takes on his lips the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush when Moses said, okay, when I go to Pharaoh, when I go to the people, who am I supposed to say sent me? God said, tell them, I am sent you. Because God is the only being in the universe who simply exists, who always exists, always has existed, always will exist, is dependent on no one and nothing to exist. He alone is truly eternal, and so he can call himself simply, I am. And when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus is not just saying, I'm really old. Jesus is saying, I am the I am. I am God. I have always existed. I took on flesh and was born of a virgin and became a man at a particular time in history. But I'm the son of God in the flesh. And as the son of God, there was never a time where I began to exist. I have always existed. What kind of person says things like that? We all know the famous... A quote from C.S. Lewis, right, C.S. Lewis said, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Either he was crazy, and there have been some crazy people who've said some crazy things in history. Either he was crazy, or he just straight out lied about who he was, and he was wrong. Or he is the Lord. He is God. And, and C.S. Lewis is making the point there, the same point we're making this morning, right? That Jesus does not leave us the option of being neutral or just saying, well, he was a good guy. He said some good things. No, he's either God or he's crazy. What is it that you say about Jesus? What do you believe about him? Do you believe that he was right to say, Anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me? Do you believe that Jesus is worthy of greater love, higher allegiance than anyone and anything else in your life? Because if he's God, he is. But if he's not, he isn't. And you can't be neutral about that. You have to decide. Jesus himself emphasized the importance of our response. When he said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33... Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. Another translation puts it this way, therefore everyone who confesses me before men, I also will confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my father who is in heaven. Jesus says, you confess me or you deny me. You acknowledge before men that you belong to me, that I'm Lord, that I'm God, or you deny it. And whichever one you choose has eternal consequences. You confess me before men, I confess you before my Father. That one's mine. If you deny me before men, I deny you before my Father. That one's not mine. Which one are we going to choose? Now, we know, right, that you can have moments of weakness and failure like Peter did, where Peter denied Jesus three times, but Peter repented and then confessed Christ, right? So this is not like, if you do this one time, it's sealed forever, right? The question is, how are you going to respond now and in the long term? Are you going to confess Jesus? Are you going to try to ignore Jesus? Are you going to reject Jesus? Trying to ignore him is making a decision. It's, it's choosing one of the two options. Now, as Christians, right, those of us who are Christians, we, we know what side of this we come down on, right? We know what we believe about Jesus. We do confess that Jesus is Lord. And, but we're not the first, and we're not the only. All throughout the scriptures, we are given models of people who confessed jesus as lord in various ways and and these models are given to us as examples as encouragements for us to learn from for us to imitate right and one of the things that helped me in in thinking about this and thinking about how to put this together and thinking about how what it looks like for us to confess our faith and and to, to say out loud what we believe i was um looking at some work a a church historian had done on all, all the creeds and confessions throughout the history of the church. And he started with the places in the Bible where we see people confessing their faith in Christ, their faith in the Messiah, or, or, uh, or writing in, in a way that sort of makes up a kind of confession of faith that we find in the Scripture. And so I'm going to be drawing some from his list. Some of the verses I think are ones I, I found on my own. Some are the ones I drew from, from him. But I, I just want you to hear how many times, and I'm just going to give you a sample. I can't give you anywhere near all of them. How many times we are given in Scripture the words of people who are confessing their faith in Christ. It's not just... We have statements where we're told things like, many people believed in Jesus at that time, or, or many people you know, believed the word that he had spoken, or whatever. But these are specific instances where we are given the words that people use to confess their faith in Christ. For example, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus... It says that John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. That's John one twenty nine. That's John's confession of faith. He's saying out loud to the public, this is who Jesus is. This is who I know him to be, because of what God has revealed to me. We see Nathanael's confession of faith in John 1.49, where Nathanael says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. We see in Matthew 14.33, when uh, the disciples are with Jesus in the boat, and it says those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. They, They didn't just think it, they didn't just kind of guess at it. They said out loud, this is who we believe you are. We believe, Jesus, that you are the Son of God. When Jesus put his famous question that we started with to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter's response in Matthew sixteen sixteen was, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Jesus came to Mary and Martha, when their brother Lazarus had died, and Martha came out to talk to Jesus, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then here's one of Jesus' questions. Do you believe this? And Martha said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She didn't just say, we could have just been given her yes. Yes, I believe that. But we're given her full confession. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world later, uh, or actually earlier in John chapter 6 when Jesus had said some really hard things in his teaching and a lot of people who had been following Jesus had had enough they said, this guy is saying things that we, we just can't tolerate, we're out of here and Jesus turned to his disciples and asked them if they wanted to leave too and in that moment we get another confession from Peter who says Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In John 16, 29 and 30, his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And when Jesus died on the cross, we're told in Mark 15.39, there was a centurion there observing Jesus' death. And it says, the centurion, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Even that Roman centurion had to confess what he knew to be true about Jesus when he saw the way that he died. And perhaps the most famous confession anywhere in the Gospels is the confession of Thomas. Thomas, who is famous for doubting, for saying, I'm never going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, whatever the rest of you think and say, until I have seen with my own eyes and touched with my own hands the wounds in his flesh from his death. If I don't see him and I don't touch him, I'm not going to believe. And then Jesus showed up, and showed himself to Thomas and said, here you go. Touch me here. Touch my side. See that it is I. And John 20, 28 says Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. All the doubt was gone, and Thomas could not help but confess what he had come to believe about who Jesus was. Surely, The Scriptures do not give us the words of so many confessions of faith in Christ to encourage us to be silent about our faith, but to confess it, to imitate them, to say out loud with them, my Lord and my God, we believe that you are the Son of God, that you are the Christ, that you are the Holy One, that you are the Lord. And the rest of the New Testament does not leave it there with those confessions of faith in Christ, but also instructs us that confession is essential for us if we trust Jesus, if we believe in Jesus, if we belong to Jesus. From the chapter we read earlier, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, perhaps the most well-known verses about the importance of confessing our faith, says, If you confess with your mouth, That Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In other words, Paul's saying you can't be saved without some sort of confession. You can't be saved without being willing to say, Jesus is Lord. I believe God raised Jesus from the dead. I believe that Jesus died for sinners. We must be willing to confess our faith. And not just to mouth words, but to mean it. And to be able to mean it is something that only is made possible by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12.3, he says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now that doesn't mean that you can't say the words, Jesus is Lord, without being a Christian, without having the Holy Spirit. But it means you can't say them and mean it without the Holy Spirit having worked in you to come to believe it. Unless you've been born again. It is a supernatural thing to be able to say from the heart, I believe Jesus is Lord. I believe Jesus is God. That's the core confession of every Christian. It's what we confess and we believe and are saved. It's what the Holy Spirit enables us to say. And it's the confession that we hold on to throughout our Christian life. For example, Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. We have a hope in Christ for the future, because of what Christ has done for us in the past. And he says you got to hold on to that confession of your hope, of eternal life, of resurrection, of seeing Jesus face to face. 1 John 4.15 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. And he in God. That's for whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. At some point, Timothy said in front of a bunch of people, this is what I believe. This is what I confess. These are the truths that I hold to. And not only do we have passages like that, but we also have passages that sound like they could be confessions of faith. In fact, some scholars think that some portions of the New Testament were actually confessions in use in the church before they were used in uh, the letters of the New Testament. Whether they were or weren't is something probably nobody will ever know for certain. But it's significant that when you hear them, you think, I can, I can imagine Christians in the first century gathering in their homes as a church and, and saying these things aloud because these words have the, the simplicity, the brevity, the clarity, the poetic feel that a, a good confession of our faith always has. For example, 1 Timothy 3:16, Paul says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels. Proclaimed among the nations. Believed on in the world. Taken up in glory. We even have one of these in the Old Testament. What we call the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Those two verses are still central to Jewish confession today. How do you say back to God, we've heard what you said and we believe? When God says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. How do you tell him you've heard? You say it back. Yes, Lord. We believe that you are Lord and that you are one. Paul, some scholars think, sort of modified that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 6 and expanded it with the coming of Christ, right, where he says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. One of my favorites, a passage I go back to over and over and over again, is First Corinthians fifteen, three and four, where it says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There you not only have that rhythmic quality that comes with confessions that have been developed to enable people to say aloud together, this is what we believe. But you have Paul reminding them, look, I didn't make this up. This was delivered to me and I handed it on to you. We're passing this down. This is what we all affirm. He goes on to say later in that passage, this is what all the apostles preach, this is what every Christian believes, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is what we believe, this is what we confess. Now, I'm well aware of the dangers of rote repetition, of meaningless mumbling, of a recitation that has no reality to it. Baptists have rightly reacted against all of that. We don't want to be saying things just for the sake of saying them. But, could it be that in reacting against that, we have also lost something good? That it might be good for us to be able, at least on occasion, to say together, this is what we believe. we sing seen together... We pray together. Why not confess together? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Why not be able to say, at least on occasion, those things that we hold in common? Why not say them in common? I mean, when we're reading the Scriptures, don't you want to say sometimes, with Thomas, my Lord and my God, with Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, with Martha, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world, with the Jews, there is one Lord, right? Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, And don't we want to say that together sometimes? Isn't it encouraging to be in a room full of people who can all say at one moment, we believe that Jesus is Lord. I mean, the Scriptures require us to confess our faith individually, at a minimum. Jesus says you have to confess him before men. Paul says... It's by confessing and believing. You can't separate the two. You can't just say the words. That's not enough. You have to believe it too. Your heart has to be involved. But Paul says it's both. You believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth. When you divorce those two, that's when you get into trouble. And you can land on either side of that divide and be in trouble. You have to confess and you have to believe. The Scriptures... Or give that as an imperative that individually at least we have to believe or we have to confess, why not corporately confess together? This is what we believe. that same scholar who uh, listed all those passages right from from the scriptures that uh, model for us and instruct us about confessing our faith here 's the way he put it what 's the relationship between the Bible and Something like the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is not the Bible. It's not inspired. It was written by man. It's not not the Word of God. So, what's it for? What does it do? Why do we have it at all? Here's what he says The Bible is the Word of God to man. The Creed is man's answer to God. God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Israel says, We heard you, and we believe the Lord our God. The Lord is one. So we're going to say it back to you. We're going to repeat it. We're going to pray it. We're going to say it. We want you to know that we've heard and that we believe. God has told us in his word what to believe. The creed doesn't tell us what to believe. The Bible tells us what to believe. The creed is how we say to God, we believe what you said and this is the best way that we know to say it together let's pray